Welcome to Art Zany Radio. Thank you so much for being here today. Matthew, I'm just so excited to present this book to our listeners. The Last Supper Club, your memoir is extraordinary. I got to ask, though, when you were a kid, did you ever uh, play restaurant or did you play teacher or do something that uh, you knew writing and uh, restaurants would be in your future? (laughs) That's funny. Um, I think the first job I thought I was going to uh, take on as a, as a grown up was I, I wanted to be a leprechaun. Oh. Um, I thought that was a pretty reasonable career path when I was, you know, like four. Um, and then by the time I got to be like six or seven, um, I wanted to do what you're doing. I wanted to be in like broadcasting and radio or TV or something. Um, but then the older I got, uh, the more I fell in love with um not quite teaching yet. That didn't really happen until college. But but in high school, um, I became fairly obsessed with uh, with restaurants and, like you say, playing restaurants. And um, my grandparents uh, belonged to this rural Illinois um, country club. Um, but by all by all measures, it was really just a supper club with a you know um, a few acres of um, like soybeans that had some holes in it occasionally for golf. Um, but Boy, I loved I loved going to that place and just like um, actually uh, <laughs> one of the servers name um, was actually Alice and, and she was just our favorite. And I think we knew her probably for the better part of 35 years over the course of my life and my grandparents lives and all of that. So um, but it was just uh, I don't know. Nobody in my family um, was really much of a, a cook. And, and if they if they did cook. Uh, they were really just heating things up. There was no like um, ornate, you know, uh, food production like you see on in the movies or, um, you know, you hear about at your friend's house. And so for me, like um, going out to dinner um, especially was was just like a super special thing that um, didn't happen that often. But when it did, you know, you knew it was an occasion to celebrate. I think that was the same experience I had. It was a very special event to go out to dinner because usually it was mom who did the cooking and, uh, you know, there were a few fast food nights, but, but going to a restaurant was a really big deal. And so that's the generation you and I, I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And some of the sweetest moments in this book are about the dinners you would have with your mother. And she absolutely loved going out to dinner with you. And like you said, she wasn't a cook at home. I thought that some of those stories about what she used to serve were pretty, pretty great. And I I wonder if you could share with us how those dinners began. And, um, you know, what do you think, you know, being in that restaurant with her taught you about food? Yeah, so my mom just worked her butt off her entire life. Uh, She was a florist uh, for you know, nearly 50 years, um, and owned her own business, worked 60, 70 hours a week, um, you know, basically my whole life. So, uh, it wasn't that she wasn't enthusiastic about our home or taking care of me, but she just couldn't, you know, she'd get home from work and she would just fall asleep before she even sat down, never mind went to bed. Um, and so, yeah, my, my childhood dinners for the most part were like, you know, those little like, um, tough, uh, Van de Camp fried clams that resembled, you know, like little deep fried fan belts more than they did any kind of food. <laughs> but um, I, I still love them to this day, um, but not exactly at the top of the food pyramid. Um, but anyway, um, when when she was married, um, I remember her and my dad um, would go out and it was it was such a big production because, you know, uh, it was like her one night off work. Um, and she'd wear a dress and she'd reach deep into her like 
the the closet by the front door where she kept her her rabbit fur coat um and boy i just i just love that thing uh, i wish i had it still to this day um just like the sense sensory memories of that coat and the, the way it smelled and like the satin lining um and of course it was like super weird too because it was made of like probably a hundred poor little rabbits. <laughs> um, but, but all, all I knew then was like that signified, you know, a special night at some supper club, you know, in a suburb of Milwaukee or something. Um, and then, you know, when, when the marriage kind of came apart um, and I got older, uh, you know, uh, it was, it was like, we would have these special dinners uh, where I, I was kind of like, obviously still the son, but, but also like the surrogate husband in some ways, um, and I remember one night in particular, we went um, way out in the suburbs, uh, like something like 20, 30 miles. Um, and we found this place called Heaven City uh, in McGuanago, Wisconsin, um, which was like uh, back in the 20s and 30s, like a, a resort for Chicago mobsters. Um, this place even had a an airport. So like Al Capone could like, you know, fly up for the weekend or whatever. Um, and I just remember um, everything about that being just uh, absolutely beautiful um the food was like um i don't i mean this is like the late 80s early 90s so you know the, uh, the influence of of you know like west coast foodies like alice waters or charlie mm. trotter or whatnot um that, that was not present in milwaukee or or you know uh the twin cities in in that era um but nonetheless, you know, they were doing what, what we now call uh, farm-to-table cuisine. Um, and it was like we had local pheasant with locally grown apples and, um, you know, locally harvested potatoes and stuff. And uh, I don't know. That was really the first time I um, my eyes were open to just like how wonderful and amazing um, food in the Midwest um, can be, especially at like really nice restaurants that, that care about it all so much. Yeah, what a great name, Heaven City. It, it's, it's right. Fitting. You can make this stuff up, stuff up if you tried. That's right, and it is. It's just a, a glorious place, and uh, sounds like it really, you were lucky to have that time with your mom. I think that's that's pretty incredible. You made me think about restaurants in a new way. There's a paragraph shortly after you described that, where you're talking about um, the way that you know people go to restaurants so that they don't have to cook. And mm -hmm. the restaurant makes you feel at home, even though you aren't, maybe even more at home when you f than you feel at home, because here mm -hmm. your mom or your uncle or your grandma or whoever isn't in the kitchen. The kids aren't in the basement. Your dad isn't glued to the game on the tube. You are all at the table. And there's a wonderful word for this, of course, communion. And I thought that's so perfect because you're all able to pay attention to each other and you're able to be with each other in a way that you can't when... There's the chaos of the kitchen in your own house and, you know, relatives who may or may not get along or want to watch different things on TV or right. kids running up and down the stairs or whatever. And I thought that was such a beautiful sentiment. And um, I think that's something that I'll take away from the book that uh, will change how I feel about going out to restaurants. What made you think yeah, of that? Yeah, I appreciate that. That, um, that was really kind of a... Um... Well, revelation's an awfully big word, but um but but it's what it's what came to me um in thinking about, you know, uh those kind of special meals with my mom or or my grandparents, uh or now, you know, my wife and our son. Um because, you know, everybody's so busy all the time. I mean, it's 
always been true, of course, but it, it feels ever more true now. Um, and just like carving out both a time and a space where you can all get together is just so increasingly rare. Um, and, you know, there's, there is uh, tons to be said for, for families who have, you know, the, the robust home cook uh, who can, you know, feed 20 people or something like that. My, my uh, mother-in-law is definitely uh, of that, of that ilk. And, you know, she, she can take care of a whole brood at her house. Um, but uh for for my little family, it really it really needed to be in restaurants, um, and it was uh, it was there when I really you know kind of came to the I don't know I guess it was like I say it's kind of a revelation that like this is for our little more or less secular family that was as close to like something holy as as we could come up with. Yeah, it's something really beautiful, and there's so many great moments in this book. I think that. Um, one of the highlights was about the food life in near Milwaukee and Wisconsin. You talked about uh, Lakewood Brewery, I think. Is that, did I get the name right in that? The one in uh, yeah, Lake Street Brewery. Lake Street. Oh, I knew I had it wrong. I meant to go look in our cabinet because we ha- we went there. My sister and her husband took us there, and it's probably oh, the, nice. the first place. This was years and years ago. It had probably just opened, and it was the first place. Uh, first time we bought pint glasses for our house. <laughs> came <laughs> nice. came from there, and um, you know, it's just it was a. I, I, maybe a little bit ahead of its time. And of course it came from Wisconsin because that seems to be the, the beer place of in the Midwest. Right. <laughs> and uh, it was, um, you know, just such a, a, a great pairing with beer and food. And you got to see the whole process, which was something that you know most of us had never gotten to see before. Um, but the Midwesterners have a special relationship to beer. We, Love our light beer. I, I heard recently, I don't know if this is really a fact, but my friends told me that Michelob Golden Light is only sold in Minnesota because it was the only place that it succeeded. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to my um, sister's wedding and those Wisconsinites drank out of this giant glass boot. I, I don't really understand the tradition to this day, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they did. Uh, and, you know, we we have this, this really interesting relationship with food. And maybe it's similar in some of the other places, too, but we certainly have our share of breweries now. And that's where this book takes place, uh, the Last Supper Club, a waiter's requiem. And you are one of the, you were there to, to open the restaurant, which doesn't get to happen very often either. What were you thinking when you heard about their concept and their idea of putting together a, a restaurant at the brewery? Well, I'd love to say I had this like uh, career trajectory that I, you know, had mapped out, you know, months or years in advance. But, but the truth of the matter is, like, uh, you know, I was broke and needed a job. Um, I I was teaching at a university um, and was on sabbatical, which which I didn't really fully understand or appreciate. Came with a fifty percent pay cut, um, and being, you know, an English major, it it took me about seven or eight months to figure <laughs> out that that was quite a bit of money. Um, and so uh, when when it was time to, um, you know, stop the hemorrhaging, I just had to get a job. And I simply looked around and tried to figure out, um, you know, wh- where was the busiest restaurant that I, you know, might manage to to get a position. Um, and at the time, uh, the Surly Brewing Company had just opened. Um, and I thought, well, what the heck, I'll, I'll check their website. And, um, and anyway, it, it turns out that they were hiring um, banquet staff. Uh, so I, I applied for that job and managed to somehow get an interview. 
And when I showed up, it wasn't the banquet manager, but rather um, this guy, Dan DeNovis, uh, who was uh, the manager of um, what they called, you know, this new like high concept um, fancy fine dining affair that was going to be situated above the beer hall um, at the Surly Brewing Company. Um, and uh, I remember the, the first question he asked me was like, so, you know, we're going to be doing some pretty weird stuff. Like, how do you feel about serving like duck tongues and stuff? Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, sure. Like, I, if that's a thing, then yeah, I'll serve it. Um, I didn't even know ducks had tongues. Never that's mind what that I they thought were too. Edible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, uh, I ended up just, um, hitting it off with Dan, um, and, and took a position there. Uh, and yeah, within like two or three weeks of really super rigorous and intense training, uh, there we opened. Um, and I ended up working at that restaurant, uh, from the day it opened to the day it, uh, unfortunately closed about two and a half years later, even after I was back at, um, my regular teaching appointment and full pay and all that. I just, I just love that place and the food and the people so much. Yeah. And that's what this book does is it takes us inside the business and inside the restaurant world in a way that a lot of us might not have, have known about. And, you know, as you mentioned, you are a university professor, but you kind of did have a trajectory that led you to restaurants because as you went around getting your education, one of the things you were able to do in any place that you happened to go for grad school or um, PhD or any of the things that you, you pursued was to uh, work in different restaurants. And I just, I love that part of the story. And one of the things I think that this is where you mentioned it in the book was that the restaurant experience brings together people you would never have encountered in any other line of work. So you really get to see a window into, you know, all the people of the world and, and how they work and who they are. And so I wonder if you could just share with us, you know, some of the stories of the characters that you met and on that journey, maybe somebody at the Columbus fish market um, that I thought was amazing that they let you do just about anything to make a customer happy or in Milwaukee, that place that might have been a mob restaurant that... You oh, could, no, it was. It was. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you could eat the chili. I'm, I'm not casting aspersions there. Like, you, <laughs> you just type in Peter Picciuro Jr., um, and you'll see all sorts of proceedings in the paper and the courts and all of that. But. Well, there you could eat the chili, but not the minestrone. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So <laughs> you had a whole host of experiences in, in a variety of styles of restaurants, too. And was was it that that kept you coming back or was it just the work that was, you know, you could pick up and grab some cash and, uh, you know, make it through whatever schooling you were in? Yeah, the, the quick money is definitely a big incentive. But but I think the thing that I've always loved about restaurants, um, pretty much every single one of them uh, was just like how each restaurant is kind of a universe unto itself, sort of like a, a microcosm of, of of really just like the entire population. You know, you'll have folks like often the executive chef uh, who like, you, you know, went to culinary school and sought advanced degrees and global experience in order to like um, become uh, the the chef he or she turned out to be. But but then, you know, you're just like a mover to away in the kitchen um, from folks who are, you know, um, you know, immigrants, uh, non-native speakers of English um, or otherwise just just people who. Um, you know, will will do anything to support their families, um, even if it means working, you know, like two or three jobs, 80 hours a week, something like that. 
Um, and then, you know, it's, it's also a pretty forgiving place with people with checkered past. So many of the kitchens I worked in had, uh, you know, ex cons, um, which was eye opening to say the least. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, among the service staff or, or the kitchen staff alike, I mean, I've known ballerinas, I've known actors, I've known published authors. Um, I've known, you know, like literally, literally like bishops in the Mormon church, uh, comedians, like just everybody, everybody works in restaurants. Um, but then it's all toward the same end of like, you know, being a cohesive, um, more or less like family unit that can anticipate what everybody else is about to do or needs to have done. Um, and there's just something so kind of cool and beautiful about how, um, so many disparate and weird and like um, incongruous experiences and people can come together and make something cohesive um, for, you know, for the guests in a restaurant who often don't have any idea what's going on in the background. Um, Cause like, un unless you've walked into the back door of a, of a busy restaurant, like you've, you've just never seen it. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a strange and semi-violent and always kind of weird and chaotic place um, and then you, you know, get to the floor and everything's just kind of fluid and well, if things are going well, things right. are fluid and, and lovely and everybody can have a good time. Yeah. Um, that's so, so reminds me of, yeah, that's so you know, true. How, how ducks work. <laughs> yeah. And the, the last supper club takes us there into, um, the restaurant at the Sur Surly Brewing, um, I guess, uh, what do we don't call it? It's cause it's more than just the restaurant. There's a whole, uh, entire business there that, that operates, but you were particularly in the, um, brewer's table and you gave us this lovely peek into the world of fine dining and waiting tables. I have to say, I never knew that the glasses were polished as much as they were <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> constantly trying to get, and not, you know, everything to be perfect at the, at each place setting. I think they even used, um, instead of like what most restaurants do, fold up a napkin to make the table level, they have, you know, an actual levels and, uh, you know, somebody who comes out and, and makes sure that that's perfect, too. And it's but it's also I swear we had like a mechanical engineers taking care of that stuff. It was insane. Yeah, that is amazing. And it's an amazing detail. It's, it's but it's also a heartfelt story about belonging and teams and the love of great food and good service. And so what made the, the Brewer's Table uh, magical for you when, in that, those first weeks that you were there? Um, that, was, that was when not only the training, but you were trying to get the restaurant open and get people to find out about it. Yeah. I, so I think, like I said, I, I, I took the job thinking I was just going to be, you know, another hand in a, in a banquet, um, situation, uh, which, you know, is pretty anonymous. You, you don't even know, you don't really have to know anything about service, um, you know, in any great detail anyway, to, to show up and like sling plates around, you know, eight tops at, in a conference hall or something like that. Um, you know, people usually have literally like it's the steak or it's the fish. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's those the only two words you have to use all night long. Um, but when when we showed up to to start training at the, the brewer's table, um, I think almost everybody else knew what they were getting into. But I sure didn't like I I went in there um, totally benighted thinking, all right, this is like high end, quote unquote, food. But whatever I've served, you know. Um, salmon tartare and steak carpaccio. And like, I, th I thought I knew my way around fancy food. Um, and then we got the spec sheets for 
every dish on the menu and there were there were 20 things on the menu and each of those spec sheets had about 250 to 300 words um, most of which I, I didn't know you know like strange stuff uh, like hyssop or huidlacoche or micro cilantro um, like stuff that you know I guess resembles food um, but I, I sure didn't know where it came from or what it tasted like or why you would cook with it mm-hmm. um, and I I just remember being like sort of stunned by that on my first day and on my second day I showed up um, thinking, all right, we're going to go over everything and, and it'll become clear. And almost every other server had already created like a big stack of note cards. Um, and it was just like, whoa, like people are <laughs> taking this so seriously. Um, and I think that translated to the kitchen seeing that, you know, all right, so the front of house is into what we're doing and they're going to take this seriously. And like, it, it just became this like positive feedback loop where they couldn't throw enough information at us. Um, and we couldn't be more enthusiastic about what they were doing um, with, with food and pairing it with beer and all that. Um, and it just like, it was just a dynamo of like uh, finding ways to um, like not really one up, but, but just kind of like take each other so seriously and care about what, what other people cared about, um, it was just infectious and in the best possible way. Yeah, I thought that was an amazing detail within the the book because I didn't realize how many of the people in some of those restaurants had some like really incredible food experiences. They were, you know, they'd worked at some of the top places with some of the the absolute best chefs and best staffs in the entire community, and they had, you know, really. Um, amazing experiences that they could bring to the table. And the other thing that was, was interesting was um, in addition to that training, which I just cannot like uh, some of those ingredients I couldn't even pronounce. And I'd heard of some of them because I I love watching shows on TV about cooking, but it was, it was just mighty impressive. And, but you had a chef that kind of let you guys sometimes give some feedback and sometimes uh, there, there was one scene, I'm, I'm trying to remember who, which meal it was. You were doing the training and the tasting, and um, somebody suggested maybe a little little acid, some lime perhaps. And mm-hmm. you, you thought, don't do that. Don't, what are you saying? Don't bring that up. But it, it, it seemed like it was a really incredibly um, amazing place for that, that, that um, you know, there was the people that served and, and the, the cooks and the, there was a there was a back and forth, maybe a little bit more than some of the restaurants. And some of that might have had to do with the way Surly set up their their objectives, let's say, for for, you know, the place they wanted to be. Yeah, I would attribute that entirely to, to our executive chef, Jorge Guzman. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he was intense. He was irascible. He was uh, fierce and super serious. But he was also super sweet and tenderhearted um, and not like kind in a typical Midwestern way, um, but but kind in the way that like he he could see or feel or, or hear like what you needed. Um, at, like I had a table, for instance, that was just killing me. It was this big like, you know, party of eight or something like that. Um, and they, they insisted on, um, you know, trying to bribe me to get food from the beer hall downstairs, which Ooh, was just like, that was a no, you no. Know, yeah. And you know, I, I, I get from the surface of it, like, yeah, we're under the same roof. 
Um, but that would be like going to an airport and you've got a ticket for Delta and you go over to the spirit desk and you're like, can I just use this here? Is that cool? Um, <laughs> like, yeah, they're the same planes on the same tarmac and all that, but, but it's not how it works. Um, and anyway, uh, this, this table ended up like smuggling a, an order of fries upstairs and, and they were really kind of a little gross about it. Um, and I was just so stressed out because I thought Jorge was going to flip out and fire me for allowing mm-hmm. this to happen. Um, and it was this like pinball effect where like I went over and told my manager what was going on and he just nodded and, and uh, kind of looked at me cryptically. And then he walked over to Jorge and Jorge nodded and looked at me cryptically and Dan cryptically and then looked at the table and he walked over and they just pointed at the door, um, kicked them all out. It was amazing. <laughs> Um, I, I, I love that I was going to be the one hitting the bricks, but instead, um, to me, that's the kind of chef he was, where it was like um, no one was above treating each other well. Um, and he, you know, he was there to enforce it, uh, in addition to serving uh, amazing food that, as, as you intimate, like he wanted feedback about. Like he, he didn't want us to just blindly, you know, say, yes, chef, this is this is great. Um, if it needed acid, you know, uh, as May was going to say, where's the lime? Like, mm-hmm. come on. Ray. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he also came great. up with this idea, which I've never heard of, where you had uh, maybe I think it was called beer in a bump. Yeah, and that's right. It was like this um, competition between all the different uh, chefs and back and people could order beer, but they could never uh they didn't get to know what it was. Right. Is that how it worked? Yeah, that's exactly it. It was like. 10 or 12 bucks or something. Um, and, you know, even though I've worked in a lot of restaurants, uh, I still don't entirely know what, what beer in a bump is code for. <laughs> like, is that beer in a shot or is that supposed to be a drug reference? I never really fully knew, but all, all I knew is what it meant for, for our uh, for our restaurant. What it meant was, uh, yeah, every day the chefs would compete with each other to come up with some strange like one or two bite little thing. Um, and then we'd, we'd pair a little four ounce, uh, shot, if you will, of, of beer to go with that. Um, and that was just like part of what made the the restaurant, the brewer's table, such a special place too, was, um, you know, nobody was just a, like a cog in the machine, sort of like blindly, you know, doing the same kind of thing over and over again. Um, but there were always opportunities for creativity. Um, and you know, you were, you were, were ro- <laughs> you were rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the chefs whose dishes got picked on any given day were always so stoked. And um, I remember like one day it was like, uh, well, what was it? It was like expressions of herring or something like that. And it was like, <laughs> you know, pickled herring, herring ice cream um, with like dehydrated a- herring chips. And a foam um, too. I think there was a foam. In that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Got to have a foam. Um, another day it was like this. Uh, dehydrated, deconstructed Bloody Mary in a in a little shot glass that made it look like a uh, a little terrarium. Um, <laughs> wow! And it was just the kind of stuff that you only really saw, um, as you said, like on on the Food Network or something. Um, mm-hmm. It was it was amazing to to be a part of that. Yeah, and and I love that they were trying to take beer and you know pair it with food in a way that we've often f- familiar with doing with wine, but they were doing that with beer and so you had to know as much about the beer as you did the the food and so there were a lot of details that went into this in fact i learned a new word um reading your book which everybody might know what a sommelier is 
But mm-hmm. the beer equivalent, Cicerones, was a new word for me. Yeah, that's right. Um, and and in fact, we all had to become, I forget what level, but, you know, basically first level um, Cicerones, uh, which I don't think there's probably another restaurant in the world that does that, or it certainly didn't in 2000, what was it, 15, 16, around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> it was intense. Like we had to not just kind of like, you know, taste the beer but we had to like know its components you know which which malt which hop uh, what kind of yeast um all of that um and that was every server you know had that experience and that ability um and when it came down to it as as you say you, you know we we were a brewery so we literally couldn't serve um wine um but at the time and i wonder if it's even different today at the time, there was only one restaurant that we knew of in the world that was pairing like high-end food uh, exclusively with beer. Um, and that was some, you know, ultra elite place in uh, Manhattan that was, you know, it cost like, I think $150 for the food. And then if you wanted the beer pairing to go with it, it was it was like another $75. Wow. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think that would have ever flown <laughs> in, uh, in Minnesota. Um, and it was still plenty expensive. I mean, our pairing menu with both the food and the the beer was was $75 but relatively inexpensive for for like a you know one of a kind fine dining experience absolutely Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Art Zaney, Radio for the Imagination. I'm here with Matthew Batt. We're talking about The Last Supper Club, A Waiter's Requiem. And that is going to be the feature at Content Bookstore on Thursday, the 16th of November, 2023 at 7 p.m. That's going to be in-store or on Facebook Live. You can get all the details at contentbookstore.com forward slash events. It is a night with Matthew Batt in conversation with our own Benjamin Percy, which is going to be spectacular. I don't know if he's given you any preview of what he might be asking, but I can't wait to see what uh, what things he brings up for you. So be ready. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> It'll be a great night. So I hope you'll all join us there. And, uh, you know, talking about the book, it really um, takes us inside this, this world of high-end food and uh, characters and Um, there's, I mean, there's so much in here talking about front of house, back of house, the owners, the beer scientists, uh, you know, you really do get immersed in this world. And I wonder when it is that you, um, told the crew, or maybe you weren't taking notes at the time, but what, that you were considering writing this in, in a memoir form. And I wonder what they thought about that idea or how did they react to that possibility? You know, I think everybody kind of understood that I was like a, a teacher and, you know, taught English and creative writing. Um, but like like so many of the folks I work with, like they had, you know, uh, professional or other lives outside of the restaurant work that was just like, well, that was just over there. Like that wasn't what we were doing here. So as long as it doesn't impact what's going on on any given shift, like it, it was like you completely forgot about it. Um and to be honest, I, like like I mentioned a, a bit ago, like I just really needed the money. Like mm-hmm. I wasn't in there like, you know, some kind of uh, George Plimpton kind of character um, trying to to craft some, you know, um, immersion journalism sort of piece for the Paris Review or something like that. Um, I was taking notes for sure, um, but they were notes exclusively to get me through, you know, the service in front of me. 
Um, but I kept all those notes and, uh, you know, at, at, at a certain point, um, and I think it was, it was really close to, um, when the restaurant was about to close. Uh, and I, I just kind of began to notice, um, just how much attention the restaurant had gotten and how like, you know, not just like beer bloggers, um, or, uh, foodies, but, but like people would come and they would want to savor the whole experience. They'd, um, film and take pictures and, you know, every media outlet imaginable, um, including the food network and, you know, WCCO and, and all of the local press and regional press. Um, and I, it just sort of slowly dawned on me. It's like, Oh, this is like, this is interesting to people. Um, mm-hmm. and then I got to thinking like, well, I guess, I guess I was a part of it. Like maybe I have a story to tell as well. Um, and you know, um, I, I think we can probably agree that, uh, a lot of the, the best books about restaurants are almost entirely written by, um, the chefs. That's right. Um, and, and when I tried to figure out like, what kind of sense does it make to write like a, a, a waiter's memoir? Um, I, I tried to find, you know, I tried to find some and, and just came up pretty short. Um, there are a few out there that are something along the lines of like, you know, the, the salty waitress kind of tell-alls. Um, and then there's a, a novel uh, about fine dining um, in Manhattan by Stephanie Dandler, which, which pretty closely parallels some of my experience, but, but that was a novel, not a memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of thought, what the heck, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, and I think the last thing that really kind of um, emboldened me to, to take on this as a project was um, that I realized I had not only helped open this restaurant, but, but I worked there from the beginning to the middle um, until the, the bitter end. Um, and part of what's hard about writing nonfiction is that, you know, you can't craft the ending. You've got you've to find it. You have mm-hmm. to um, sort of pick its spot from, from life, not from, uh, invention. Um, and so when it, when it came time for the restaurant to close, I thought, well, there it is. I have the, the fullness of an experience of, you know, the entire lifespan of a restaurant before me. Yeah. And it's such as we're so lucky to have it because we don't have that restaurant right now. And right. I, I, I adored how you lovingly, you know, reveal this experience. And it's certainly something that you were passionate about and that everybody cared about and wanted it to be successful. And then there was this one line in the sentence that in the book that really surprised me, but it makes complete sense. Let's see if it does to other people too. To be sure, lots of people go to restaurants in order to not have a good time. They don't (laughs) know it, but they do. They expect to be let down. And it, that I was like, whoa, that kind of blows my mind. But it makes sense now that I think about it. You know, there were um, it sets up this kind of strange dynamic and experience for everyone. But there are people who want to complain, want to find fault, want to you know have things on their own schedule, want to go off the menu, want to you know do things that are not possible. And that um, that's a part of of being in the service industry in in a restaurant as as well. How did you learn to handle those kinds of diners? Because not everybody had that love that all of you had. No, that's for sure. Um, I had plenty of experience it through my mom's, uh, third husband. <laughs> he was, he was just like, uh, you know, this, this, uh, old timer from Cudahy, Wisconsin, who just everything, you know, unless it was like, um, l- l- the equivalent of like his mother's ham bone soup, 
um, it was it was going to be a disappointment. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you don't often see ham bone soup uh, in in many places. No. Um, and uh, at any rate, like I, w- I would cook for Bob and my mom and, um, you know, he 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 slowly but gradually learned to like accept and then begrudgingly kind of like the the cooking I would do. Um, and so it, it helped to kind of figure out, you know, all right, I know I'm not going to like um, thrill clients or guests like him, but like I can put something in front of him and say, just give it a shot. You know, mm. um, if you don't like it, like we'll take it off the bill. Um, and uh, often enough, uh, that wouldn't be like an entire party at the restaurant. It would be like, you know, w- one guy with his arms crossed and his, you know, legs crossed. And he's like leaning back as though to like put as much distance between the table and uh, the experience and himself as possible. Um, and, and one of the things that we ended up doing, I think, pretty well um, was... Uh, pairing each dish with uh, beers that you literally couldn't buy. Like we would, Mm. we would brew them or infuse them or steep them with different um, ingredients and such to, to really like curate the experience so that you could only have it um, if you ordered that dish or if you got the pairing menu. Um, And, you know, Surly's rightly so a popular brewery, but, but a lot of people just want the lager or they just want furious. Um, and so when they would come in and like uh, five of the of their party of six would order the pairing menu and then, you know, this guy would be like, yeah, whatever, I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> just give me just give me the, the light beer um, and then be like, OK, we can do that. Um, but then as as the evening goes on and he sees us, you know, laying these interesting dishes out and these super unique beers to everybody in his party. He's like, all right, all right like, you know, just don't make a big deal about it, just like. I'll catch up now. Um, <laughs> um, and it was that was, those were always the best, right? Cause like they weren't the, the easy fish to catch. Yeah. It's fun to, to hear those stories and people should read it to learn about the food and the beer, but also to learn about what it's like to really be in the restaurant doing some of those things. And one thing that I'm a fan of is your proposition. Cause I shared this, I think even before I'd read the book, we met at content at another event that was for mm-hmm. I think Nathan Hill that I think everyone should have mandatory restaurant work. And I might add to maybe even if you don't do restaurant, do retail work. So something in the service industry, because it, it teaches you that service work has value. And you posit that this might make everyone more compassionate, understanding and gracious. And I, I absolutely think that's true. I don't know how we make this happen. What, how do you think the world would change if we were able to institute that kind of service requirement? I just think it would be, I I think traffic would be better. <laughs> I think, <laughs> um, you know, certainly our, our experience in, in restaurants would be better. Um, and I just think it would be, everybody would just be a little bit kinder um, because you've been in their shoes. Um, I, I don't, I, f- I feel like we so rarely see people who have worked in restaurants be harsh on servers or bartenders. Um, because you know they they, they know right. what's going on. They know like any given restaurant is is like a helicopter. It has like a hundred thousand moving parts, and all that really holds them together is like prayer and luck. Um, and so, if one of those things goes wrong, the whole restaurant can come crashing down around them. Um, and it it really doesn't take you know 
uh, a terrific amount of empathy to be like, wow, this has got to be a really hard day for you. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and just to be able to do that instead of be like, where's my steak? I ordered it, you know, 10 minutes ago. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, I think it would just, it would just make everybody just a little bit kinder. I think you're right. And so we can figure out how to do that because that feels like a, a great place to, again, and it also does what you say it is it brings people who might never be together, together in a place having to make, you know, one goal of succeeding at this dinner service and uh, make everybody f have a good time and feel welcomed. And that that's a really important part of it. I, I just, I love it. Um, I'm looking at my a list. And I'm like, Oh, wow, I'm only halfway through my questions because I, I just love this book <laughs> so much. So I have to save some of them for the event at content next week. Um, but I think I want to uh, take a look at um, a little bit of, you know, one of the you talked about the idea that you needed to get this um, job because you needed the money. And that might surprise a lot of people, right? Because you are a university professor. And, um, you know, people around you were surprised that you did that to earn extra money. And I loved your, your outline a little bit. This is uh, later in the book about halfway through you outlined um, the reasons why you, you, you figured out that, that it made sense. And the first one really I think is an echo of both what's hard about working in restaurants and writing. Reason number one, you say is I can write at will. I cannot publish at will, which is mm. um, such a truth. There's such a misunderstanding about waiting tables, but there's also a misunderstanding about the life of a writer. Um, do you tell your students about your life as a waiter? What, what do they think when they hear about that? They must've heard about this book by now. Well, my, my students can, I mean, they've got so many things to pay attention to that are, you know, sort of insular onto the university that, that things that happen even just a few feet away from the campus, such as, you know, uh, somebody like me publishing a book, <laughs> um, they're just kind of like, okay, that's nice, but I've got to go to econ now. Like, what, why are you even telling me? Um, but, but the, the students who work in food service, um, you know, I only have to like kind of let on that, you know, well, it actually hasn't been that long since I've been a server. And actually, I've got as much experience waiting tables as I do teaching at the university level. Um, and I can just kind of feel them come over to my side and just be like, we're we're like, you know, simpatico. Um, <laughs> it's 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 really cool because um, I don't know. I my favorite people are restaurant people. You know, mm -hmm. they just they understand um, what it all means. And I think there's just kind of a misunderstanding as far as like, uh, what it's like to work in, in higher education or to be a writer, um, that you think like, you know, you're, uh, popular in some way or like, uh, able to do, um, things with your writing like at will. Uh, and it's just not the case. Like there's just no telling, uh, how, something you write is is going to find its way into print um it's it's certainly not accidental that's for sure mm -hmm. um but neither is it um because you're choosing to do so you know like uh there are at least um as many sort of uh hoops that a manuscript has to go through in order for it to become a published book as like you know passing any piece of legislation into law it seems um and and it's about as slow you know like it, this has taken I think I've been more or less finished with the book for 
uh, almost three years. Um, and it's, it just takes a long time to, to get up an agent and an editor and a press and everybody on board. Um, and then, you know, all of the logistics of, um, editing and copy editing and lawyers and printing and shipping. And, you know, yeah. it's just, it, it's, it's a crazy process. It is not a well-oiled machine every day pumping out something fantastic. It's a very um, clunky old <laughs> system that makes it really hard to be successful in, in writing. But we are forever lucky because you put these words onto the page and we can share your experience. There's so much more in this book. I think I'm going to close with this, even though I've got about another 10, so I'll save them for the, the night at, at content. Uh, and it's it's recently I heard this interview with John Stamos, and he has this new biography, If You Would Have Told Me. And he mentioned the last supper he had with his best friend, Bob Saget, from Full House. And mm, yeah. he was in a hurry to leave. He, he said, you know, let's go. I, I got to go on to this other thing. But Bob kept saying, let's stay for cake. And then he would say, let's stay for coffee. And John Stamos, of course, had no idea this was going to be his last supper with his dear friend. And, yeah. you know, he said, stay for the cake. And that's the interviewer who was doing the interview. Might have been Willie Geist on Sunday um, today. It just said, that's a line that's going to stick with me. And I think this book reminds me of that, to savor those meals and that time together, that these are sacred times. And it took a whole lot of work and imagination and practice and balance to bring this meal at a restaurant together. So I want everyone to take the time for those meals. And I wonder what being in the restaurant industry is, has um, taught you about, you know, what do you take more time for? And what is it um, bring to your world because you've been a part of the restaurant world. Mm, well, I don't think we're going to do better than uh, what you just said. <laughs> I mean, stay <laughs> stay for the cake is is about as perfect a sentiment as I can think of. True, um, but but it's it's totally true. You know, I think we we often uh, e even though we go to restaurants um, many times because we want a, a a special experience like. We're like, oh, yeah, I don't we don't need an appetizer, right? Like, that's just expensive. And we certainly don't need dessert because we just had an entree like five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, th I think the more we can um, sort of use the, the whole thing. I don't know. I mean, the title of my book is The Last Supper Club. So I'm I'm on on some level a, a kind of religious guy. Um, and I, I think just like going for the entree would be like going to mass just so you can, you know, get there for communion. <laughs> and then, you know, you miss the whole sermon, you miss the um, the homily, you miss the, uh, everything after the um, the greeting, your, your um, you know, folks in the pews in front and behind you and all of that, which is always my favorite part about church. Um, absolutely stay for the cake. Absolutely. I so appreciate your time and um, really want people to share in this experience as well. So pick up your copy of The Last Supper Club, A Waiter's Requiem by Matthew Batt. Come to content next week on Thursday, the 16th of November at 7 p.m. And you know, enjoy an evening. Maybe we should uh, stick around. Bring I'll bring these questions. You bring your questions. And we'll have a lot of fun learning a little bit more about uh, this great experience of being at a restaurant. So I thank you so much for uh, being a part of the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Paula. You're welcome.